Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with calls for violence and civil war coming from U.S. Congressman Gates, who was standing next to Donald Trump at the Iowa State Fair when he said, quote, But we know only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C., Joining us to discuss threats of civil war from MAGA world and death threats to prosecutors and judges involved in prosecuting Trump is Spencer Sunshine, who has written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias, and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. Then we'll go to Canada to speak with Stephen March, who is a novelist and culture writer whose latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. We'll discuss his new book out in September, co-authored with Andrew Yang, The Last Election, and we'll assess the likelihood of Trump inciting violence during the 2024 election season as at least four legal trials close in on him. Then finally, we'll look into criticism of an AIPAC-sponsored trip to Israel by House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, who met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and has angered progressives for not taking a stand on Israeli democracy, while AIPAC attacks progressive Democrats and supports over 100 House Republicans for re-election. Joining us is Howie Klein, a progressive blogger and political activist, as well as a concert promoter, disc jockey, music producer, record label founder, record label executive, and professor of music, who was president of Reprise Records. He supports and advises progressive candidates and blogs at downwithtyranny.com. And joining us now is Spencer Sunshine, who has written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias, and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. Welcome to Background Briefing, Spencer Sunshine. Thanks, Eden. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, and I wish we had something more pleasant to talk about, but over the weekend at the Iowa State Fair, standing right next to Donald Trump, uh, Congressman Matt Gates said, Mr. President, I cannot stand these people that are destroying our country. They are opening our borders. They are weaponizing our federal law enforcement against patriotic Americans who love this nation as we should. But we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C. So is that a call to arms? It certainly sounds like it. It is, but it's a little hard how to interpret this. So Gates is, of course, in the in a small group of um, elected officials in D.C. who are on the right wing of the Republican Party. Um, and these sorts of calls for violence are pretty common amongst the more militant base of the Republicans. I guess the real question is how much are they expanding into the more mainstream of the um of the uh, of the Republican Party and and really amongst the base, like there are occasionally these sorts of calls or hints. I mean, this is how Trump sort of engineered, you know, uh, January sixth. He doesn't do it directly, but there's a way that electeds can set the scene and then hope the grassroots, or in some uh, not direct way, you know, help engineer the grassroots from from uh, from taking action based on these these sort of hints from the officials. So I definitely believe that he would like that. And, of course, Trump would like that, too. But you've monitored that world. What's the buzz now about 
because you keep hearing talks about civil war, or in some cases, the saying that civil war is inevitable. It's true. Um, they've again, they've also said that for a long time. Like Stuart Rhodes, who is of course uh, the leader of the Oath Keepers, who are convicted for seditious conspiracies, long made a talking point of civil war. Of course, the question is like a broken clock. Does it have its minute? Um, I do believe a lot of Republicans uh, on the base would like to see that. It's an open question about how many of them would actually um, pick up arms, what that would mean for them to pick up arms, and how Democratic institutions would, would respond to that. I think it's worth – The Guardian just ran, a, ran an article about a survey about how many uh, people used to believe that the force is justified to restore Trump to the presidency, and they said it's increased now to 6.9% from earlier this year, although it should also be noted that, that that's still less than in 2021. So talk is cheap, but also possibly if the if the moment is given to them, if the opportunity is given to them, I, and enough people are there, I do believe that some people will take up um, that possibility. But they have to be presented with the right time. And as again, like on 1-6, there has to be uh, enough leeway given to them um, we're very lucky that there's a Democratic administration because it's going to be far more leery of giving them this opportunity, right? This is we heard a lot about one six about standing down of all kinds of security forces, right? Um, we're not going to be in that position now. So um, the mood is there. Is it stronger than before? Eh. Is the prosecutions of Trump going to raise? you know, raise the tenor of his base. Of course it will. We all knew it always will. Would a conviction before the election to drive that up further? Yes, it will. But again, they need to have, um, they need to have the opportunity to, to enforce that or to, to act on that. But Spencer, 6.9% of the population is 20 million people. It is, and about um, 5 to 10% of Americans also hold white nationalist views. So I think sometimes we forget in America there is a legitimate like left and right that does comprise something like that percentage on both sides. So the numbers worry me less than how, how armed, because it would only be a small number of people who would really do this. To do this with guns, it would be a, t- a small number of people, which doesn't mean they couldn't you know, do certain things or drive a larger group of people. But um, the, the raw numbers don't surprise me. We're in a country of 350 million. Kind of, of course, 7 million people are, are you know, would like to see a right-wing revolution. That, that by itself doesn't surprise me. Right. Well, but what's happening, though, in the, in the real world is that many judges and prosecutors involved in the various prosecutions against Trump are getting death threats and have to have bodyguards already. Judge Chutkin, who's, who's, uh, Tanya Chutkin, who's handling the, the U.S. District Judge, who's handling the January 6th insurrection case, she's had to have uh, bodyguards, and she's been getting death threats and hate mail, as is Fannie Willis down in Georgia, who's expected to make an announcement this week for a fourth indictment against Trump. So this is real. I mean, the the... the they're being threatened, and so are prosecutors. So that seems to be a pretty dangerous trend, uh, to say the least. It is a dangerous trend. I, I do believe that threats increase dramatically um, against public officials under Trump. 
they are right to be afraid. They are right to have security. Uh, I mean, even I'm a, a very minor figure in the big world of, of things are on the radar of the right. And, and I do, I take precautions myself. Um, again, we should re- remember that there haven't been any assassinations of judges recently, that threats are cheap. Unfortunately, the internet has allowed the price of making a threat or the cost of making a threat uh, very cheap. There was a decision kind of made many years ago that a lot of these threats threats simply weren't going to be followed up on. I mean, there was a time like in the 90s, if you made a threat against a public official, like that was going to be taken very seriously. And in the last years, I mean, really under uh, the end of the uh, Biden administration and partly driven by social media, like uh, the threats are just they've become um, we saw this. I think I saw this in 2015, 16, when I was doing some very close studies of the militia movement, how much threats had started to occur on a lower level and they've just increased. Um, so threats should be taken seriously, although also, you know, people need to know that the, the number of times these are acted on against public officials are, are very low. Like it's, we're not in Latin America, we're not in certain, you know, strife torn Latin American countries where judges get assassinated commonly. So yes, they're serious, but let's also, let's also not lose our heads about that. And, and yes, these judges and, and other officials should be taking precautions. That's absolutely right. Because some people do will, you know, individuals do will want to take advantage of this, especially if they are riled up like people like Gates. This is, is always a dangerous situation where elected officials are calling for violence. I mean, and that, but that at this point in, in the, in the absence of a big, super militant mass movement on the right will be individuals who will act those things out. Of course, that's not going to be any better if you're the, if the individual targets you, but at this point in the game, it's going to be individuals. If there was that kind of lethal violence, it would be individuals who would do it, but responding to, to larger calls. But uh, Judge Chutkin, of course, has, has basically called Trump and his lawyers over and said, look, if you try and turn this thing into a circus or a carnival, and if you keep making threats and intimidate the jury or witnesses in particular, because of course in discovery Trump will have access to a lot of the transcripts. So she has made this threat, and I don't know that Trump is capable of that kind of discipline. He's already attacking her and Jack Smith and uh, and the, the DA in in Atlanta and in Manhattan. So he does it on a regular basis. So is there any way to restrain Trump or does he is is he aware of what he's doing or is this a strategy on his part? You know, it's always so hard to tell if Trump's like chaos. You know, Trump is very good about not exactly saying things like coming just shy or maybe just over the border of illegality. And it's always so hard to tell. I mean, I think it's intuitive for him that he just like has this chaotic way of doing things. But it works for him. Clearly, he got bluffed his way into the presidency, despite being a totally incapable and, and unhinged person. I don't believe uh, I agree with you 100 percent. He's not going to be able to restrain himself. It is. He's always been given a huge leash. You know, for example, Twitter gave him this huge leash the entire time until, you know, they, they had a very clear excuse to kick him off. Like um, this is a question of um, existing laws being enforced against him, and and I understand why officials would want to be very play with kid gloves because um, you know things that happen against him are going to rile the base up. Of 
course, on the other hand, if he's convicted, that's going to be the ultimate thing, far more than any restraint put on him. So a lot of times this is a question of a, um, a unwillingness to enforce existing laws. And that's always somewhat um, flabbergasted me about, about the right wing in general, for example, about all these threats in general. I mean, these threats against judges could be followed up on, you know, with it would, it would take more resources to follow up on anonymous threats, but it's almost impossible to make to make these these days and most of these people on the right i'm sure are not going on the dark web and using you know specialized platforms to make these threats and it's a lot of this stuff is just let go so some of this is a question of the will to enforcement like a lot of things such as with the proud boys there's just there was just no will to enforcement for years and years and years until there finally was i know that the u.s marshal service protects federal judges mm-hmm. but they're probably spread pretty thin right well, there's a question of protecting the judge and a question of the FBI or, or state organizations. I don't know whose jurisdiction it falls on to follow up on who's making the threats, right? That's what needs to happen. There needs to be prosecutions, higher level prosecutions of people making threats to make the bar much higher for more people to make those threats. If they think there's going to be no um, fallout to them from doing it, or very little, unless, unless you just have to be the most obvious and explicit person, it's not going to stop. It's, it's, it's now just an activist tool in their toolbox. They know they can do this. They know it's a cheap, doesn't require a lot from them, and they know it'll have a direct effect. Well, what about Matt Gates himself? Is there any way to sanction him? That I, I couldn't answer for you. Um, it does seem like the way he's spoken. I have heard officials speak this way before. I, I doubt it. But again, you know, the law is very variable. You know, um, people can find laws, prosecutors can find laws to apply or create novel readings of laws. So some of this is, again, it's will, but I, I'm not a legal expert. Um, I, I would guess that he's still, like Trump, is shy of any kind of direct line. And there have been officials that have called for violence before, and, and there's been no um, consequences for them. That, that's not terribly uncommon, especially on a lower level. If you start looking at mm-hmm. state reps and, and, and city councilors and county commissioners, especially at West, not, not terribly uncommon to hear these things. Right. Well, again, he said, but we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C. So let's uh, talk a little about Trump's <laughs> praise of Laura Loomer, who's a... Uh, racist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobe. I guess not. It's it's a tradition in in Trump's case, right? Going back to Charlottesville, good people on both sides, right? Well, why does he keep doing this? I mean, um, even even uh, Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks that Laura Loomer is off the wall. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people like this that like some of the right wing of the Republican Party like and some don't. Loomer is a really good figure for them because she's Jewish. Um, she's young. Um, she's charismatic, you know, to some people. She herself flirts with white nationalism. And so I feel like it's a play or a nudge or um, a motion to the right to invoke Loomer, you know, and Loomer's still safe. Loomer's not. Loomer's safe enough. She's mainstream enough within the MAGA world, right? There's certainly people, I, I believe, to the right of her in the MAGA world that are still not open white supremacists. So this is a feint to the right. And, and maybe 
a move to try to court a support of the remaining alt-right people or younger people who are sort of in that still mood set as the, as the proper alt-right has faded away. You know, the, the people who are successful, Nick Fuentes, Proud Boys, et cetera, have, have become successful and the bulb of it's faded away. But that attitude amongst a lot of younger people has not. And so that might also be a nod to them to try to create some support from a younger base. So just in the last couple of minutes, you, a while back you wrote a report, Up in Arms, a guide to Oregon's patriot movement, and you followed the Bundys. It seems like Eamon Bundy's in serious trouble with, uh, with this lawsuit against the, on behalf of this hospital. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? I mean, he says that he's not, not going to pay up. I think he was, he's, supposed, he's supposed to pay millions, isn't he? Yes, there was a, a huge judgment against him. Of course, he's not going to be able to pay it. Uh, hopefully, what happens in these judgments is that it, it bankrupts the individual. It, well, I mean, you know, you're you're allowed a certain amount uh, to keep for personal reasons, um, but hopefully, it'll stop him from doing a larger level of organizing. Sometimes it, it disrupts the organizations themselves. It probably depends where the money, you know, has been kept for these organizations. If you dumb enough to have it under his personal accounts. And, and he's a fairly smart guy. This would create a big trouble for them. So the best thing with these kinds of judgments is it, it makes it much more difficult for these political actors to to essentially establish a war chest for themselves to do these things. That's the main thing for this. And again, send something of a message to other people like this is a good example of where some of these threats, you know, hospitals, a big system, it's not an individual. They they can pursue uh, civil. They're more likely to pursue civil proceedings, I think, than a lot of other um, other kinds of entities. So, hopefully, this will have some kind of an effect. But also, you know, we've already seen like his base. Of course, his supporters, who are largely armed, um, you know, responding responding quite vigorously. So, there's always there's always a back and forth with this stuff. If you if you attempt to take make a response against the far right. They already have this victim complex, right? Like this whole we're gonna we're gonna you know attack corrupt Washington. I mean, who's corrupt? I mean, we're talking about Gates and Trump. I mean, who else? Who are we talking about in Washington? Right? They're always the victims, even when they're the perpetrators. So this does create a more complex a more complex situation when you attempt to hold them accountable for their for their violent words and deeds. And what did they do in the first place in, for the hospital to sue them? Uh, the hospital was treating someone, I believe, that they didn't release them to a family member. And then Bundy started a, Ammon Bundy started a campaign against the hospital, uh, which mm-hmm. included threats and went on for quite a while. At some point, it's one thing to make one threat or something. It's another thing to run a, a campaign on false premises, right? Mm-hmm. So, I Yeah, with, that that with was, guys with, with assault rifles showing up at the hospital, yeah. Well, well thanks any, for... anything they do, they're going to show up with assault rifles. So. <laughs> yes, you, you don't leave the home without one, right? <laughs> not, not the Bundy crowd. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Spencer. Thank you as always, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Spencer Sunshine, who has written about the U.S. white nationalist movement, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis and esoteric fascists, the patriot movement and militias, and anti-Semitic currents for the past two decades. We take a brief station break and back assessing the likelihood of Trump inciting violence during the 2024 election season as at least four legal trials close in on him. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Canada is Stephen Marsh, who's a novelist, a culture writer, who's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other publications. His latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And his new book, out in September, co-authored with Andrew Young, is The Last Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Marsh. Nice to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And your book is, I hope, is not prophetic because the last election indicates that that's it's all over, and many people think that it will be all over if Donald Trump is uh, elected to a second term, um, because he's made clear, and he's and his followers and his inner circle have made clear that they essentially want to create a, an American dictatorship. So, to that extent, if Trump is reelected, it would be the last election. Is that well, your inspiration? I, 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 well, I don't think um, he even necessarily needs to get reelected. I mean, there are, I, I think we're increasingly seeing from Republican Party generally um, a sense that uh, elections themselves are inherently illegitimate and therefore can be ignored. And, you know, the, the last election, as, as we see it, is really about, I mean, really it's about how to win uh, power without actually winning an election, which the American Constitution actually makes quite possible and has happened at least twice before, once in 1824 and once in 1828 through a mechanism called the contingent election. But I, I mean, I think, you know, worrying about Donald Trump and his particular reelection is actually probably not particularly helpful at this point, because the actual problem is much more systematic and it's much more the general sense of the delegitimization of the electoral process that is, you know, certainly well underway in the United States. Well, just to touch on your um, latest book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, just over this weekend, Congressman Gates was standing right next to Donald Trump at the Iowa State Fair when he said, Mr. President, I cannot stand these people that are destroying our country. They are opening our borders. They are weaponizing our federal law enforcement against patriotic Americans who love this nation as we do. And then he went on to say, but we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like Washington, D.C. So there's a a call to arms. Extremely dangerous. Uh, Extremely dangerous rhetoric. Um, the exa- this is the kind of thing that precedes uh, civil wars all over the world. Um, it is it particularly there are a couple of things that are particularly shocking about those remarks uh, to me. One was the weaponization of law enforcement, which is you know absolutely extraordinary for uh, Republican candidates who really up until. 2016 uh, uh, were absolutely the party of law and order and they're you know uh, and they're uh, and they're absolutely denigrating their own legal system which is very very challenging but the other thing that i find really worrying about this is that it happened at the iowa state fair and there and which is you know supposed to be just baby kissing you know like it's supposed to be go and eat some fatty food and smile and that and that's what that's all it's supposed to be. And the fact that this story was not bigger is actually probably the most worrying thing of all that that now this rhetoric of we need to take uh, from a congressman, an elected official saying we need to take back government by force has now become so normalized that it basically doesn't even merit uh, a reaction. 
uh, like I didn't read about it in the New York Times. Like, I, like it, it was very much, uh, uh, you know, off the front pages. So I, all of that is extremely, extremely troubling, especially so early in an election cycle. And you mentioned uh, that the GOP used to be the party of, of law and order. It turns out that judges now and prosecutors, those particularly involved in uh, Trump's prosecutions in the many trials, and of course th- this week sometime there'll, be a f- there'll probably be a fourth indictment in Georgia, yeah. but the judge in D.C., Judge Shushkin, she has now pr- special protection bodyguards. I guess it's the U.S. Marshal Service. Yep. The, the DA in, in New York has special protection now. Trump's threatened Supreme both of them, and and uh, and the prosecutor himself, Jack Smith, yeah. also. So this is this is a new trend. I mean, again, this yeah. is the 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 party of law and order, literally threatening the lives of judges and prosecutors. I mean, I like I did put this in the books that I wrote as worst case scenarios. Like this is the this is the nightmare. Right. Where it's like where where the where legal officials require protection. But, you know, I mean, it's all of a piece because certainly in 2020 uh, election officials who are, you know, quite boring officials. Right. Like they're not supposed to be even even remotely like interesting politically um, also required protection and also felt under threat. And I and felt in, 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 in a sense of like personal physical danger because of doing their jobs. And this is, I, I mean, this is when, when you have, especially when you have the the ramping up of legal uh, prosecutions against political leaders. I mean, obviously against Trump and also against Gates, but also like with the uh, the impeachment proceedings against Biden, where you know you the legal mechanisms of the state are used as a political tool in a continuous way, and then on top of that. Those processes, were, you know, involve the threat of violence. I mean, this is how things fall apart. Like, this is how things fall apart. This is what it looks like when it happens in Ecuador or when it happens, you know, uh, in South American countries or in African countries or in European countries and other periods of history. And it seems to be coming for America. So your new book out in September, in about a month from now, co-authored with Andrew Yang, the last election, and of course, Andrew Yang ran for president on the Democratic side back mm-hmm. in 2020, and made it, I think, a, a pretty solid uh, impression. Mm-hmm. He was actually talking about real stuff in terms of what politics used to be about. It used to be about platforms, programs, ideas, as opposed to a kind of cheap reality TV show, which is how Donald Trump won uh, the Republican nomination by knocking everybody else off the island, and I'm sure that will be replayed in 2024. Yeah. So I take it his experience uh, running campaigns is, is, is very much a thread in this new book of yours. Yeah, I mean, he gave me the keys to the intellectual kingdom, as it were. He let me I mean, the deal that we came to was that he would allow me to interview his staff and everyone he employed. And they were instructed to tell me the truth, as well as he told me the truth of how things work. And then uh, he would he could cut anything he wanted at the end of it. But I wanted to know what the truth is. In the end, he cut very little. So, yeah, I mean, it is a portrait of the inner workings of um, of a I'm, I'm an independent campaign in this case. But, you know, the reason Andrew and I worked together so well is that um like the problems that America faces are not problems of individual candidates or the morality of individual people, but of a, of a system in breakdown. 
right? I and mean, I think that's that was largely his political point um, in, in his earlier campaigns. And so when you see, like, you know, I'd been I'd written the next Civil War, which was sort of a a study of the the systemic problems in American politics. But you know, after fifteen minutes conversation with Andrew and his and his people, it was like, oh, it's so much worse than I thought. I mean, it's so much worse than I thought. You know, and and, and it's and all like, about money, know, right? It's all about dark money. They are fundraisers. I mean, that is that is their job. That 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 is the job. Like I asked him, what are the what are the most important days in your campaign? He was like, first quarterly fundraising report, second quarterly fundraising report, third quarterly fundraising report. Like it it is it is it is a financial um, struggle, right? Like that is that that is the nature of this beast, and that and and that's why I, I think I think that's why actually after talking to him, like the parodies of things like Veep and things like that. Like they just can't quite deal with the boredom of, of how these campaigns work because they they're just fundraising machines, right? And and everything kind of flows from that, right? And all of the and and the, and the crisis kind of flows from that, and that's why and you know the re, that's why nobody wants to take their gas their foot off the gas and take the you know take some of the rage out of politics in America is because it's such a good way to make it's such a good way to raise money. Well, that's a suspicion about uh, this new third party. And, you, of course, your book is about a third party candidate yeah. who sort of seems a little bit more like Elon Musk than uh, anything else. But th- this no labels, of course, uh, is run by Mark Penn and his wife. Right. Uh, and it looks like they're, they're quite mendacious. They're really working for Trump. Biden only won by 50,000 votes in the Electoral right. College in those key swing states, and now they're putting the, the, no labels on those on the ballot in those key swing states. So all they have to do is 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 you know pick up 50,000 disaffected Republicans who would who would hold their nose and vote for Biden, but they give them an alternative. And and that's why I think they're dangerous. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, everything is dangerous, right? Like, I mean, I I, like, I think America is reaching a point where there are no good choices, right? Like, I, like, and I mean, that's certainly the point of the last election, right? Like, it's the same thing with prosecuting Trump. There are no good choices. Like, prosecuting Trump is a very serious problem. You are creating a system where the legal you are you are legally trying for treason presidential candidates, and once that starts happening, it will not stop. It will just continue going. On the other hand, you cannot you cannot not prosecute them. Otherwise, you know, it, it enables all of this nonsense, right? All of these, you know, outright crimes, right, to to happen, and and someone becomes, you know, above the law. So it's, you know, there is a there, and and I think, um, like what what American politics works by now is by loathing, right? It's like. Who who do you loathe that you will vote against? Right, right. That's negative partisanship. That's the that's the classic sociological explanation for electoral outcomes. And I don't know what like. There's no way for that to work out well. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's not a system. There's not a there's not a system where you can build things. It's only a system where you can tear down some things. So you know, like I don't really you know I I don't really have an opinion on this or that independent party. Like I that's not. That's not really what I look at. I try to look at structures, the deep structures of things, and the deep structures are not are, are pointing really one way. And that when you see things like gets at the Iowa festival at the sorry at the Iowa um, fair, like that's those are those are symptoms of really an under underlying crisis. 
Well, in terms of the your character, uh, the presidential candidate running on the Maverick Party ticket, uh, who, yeah. who I mentioned sort of has some echoes of Elon Musk. I wouldn't um, say he's like Musk. No. I wasn't. I, I, I wasn't thinking of Elon Musk when I wrote him. Like right. I, I, I would say there would be some like members of Shark Tank that would be a little closer. Like, like you know, like, uh, like it, 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 elements of Mark Cuban, I would say, more than right. Elon Musk. Although, of course, it's all fictional, to be clear. Sure. But he's running on the un, and I can't even say it over the radio, un-bleep America ticket. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, the Maverick Party. In the, yeah. I mean, well, in the, but in the real world, there's a, uh, the, uh, I don't know whether you follow Bell- Bellingcat, but they do incredible work. Um, and they expose the uh, Russian FSB uh, assassins uh, who tried to kill Navalny. They're one of their leading uh, investigators, uh, Christo Grashev, was interviewed in the Financial Times where he said his main worry about the 2024 elections is that these tech moguls like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk could collude with the Russians with AI, giving, giving them AI tools, artificial intelligence tools that could swing the elections. Is is that an element in your story? We looked at it a little bit. Um, like we, we certainly have uh, extrapolated mimetic warfare, like in the sense of like, you know, uh, of distorted information networks, because that, of course, is uh absolutely consistent around america but it's interesting because like we you know i asked andrew about like well how much do you think ai will affect it and he was like well um you know it'll affect dissemination somewhat but like the 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 misinformation networks in the united states are already so saturated with text that it's unlikely that ai can shift it much like it might have a small effect it might it might have something to do with it but like uh, and, and, and as for collusion with the the tech lords, I mean, that's was a little too conspiratorial for me. Uh, although there is a, a a tech lord misinformation bad guy in this thriller, right? Who is uh, very actively trying to do that and trying to lead to the destruction of the U.S. government. Um, so you know, like I, I think you have to actually read the book to figure out how I sort of imagine or how we sort of imagined um, that would work out. But I, like my, I think AI is not really that serious because the situation is already so toxic that it can that it can only add so much. You know, like it's already. I mean, I remember the craziest stat I read in 2016 was that I think it was 15 percent of Americans had willfully shared information that they knew to be false. And that, I mean that when you have networks where that like you don't need ai if you've got 14 percent of americans sharing lies uh on on their information networks like it's it's already so toxic that i don't think ai will make much of a difference but you know but that's only because it's it's so bad that it's basically saturated right but these uh tech moguls who are libertarian and and also in uh, musk's case are, are right-wing trolls there it's yeah. not a, a big leap we know in um, Musk's case that he's he'd actually he prefer Putin to to win in Ukraine, and frankly, Putin's counting on Trump coming back. It's the only way he's going to win the wars uh, in Ukraine. So it's not a, a big leap to assume that some of these tech billionaires would like to have an America that's like Russia, that's run by oligarchs, because after all, they're oligarchs. Well, I think they have 
a, a sense of it's very hard to separate them out from the general community. I like look, I mean, the bad guy in this in the last election in this thriller is a tech lord. Right. Like it's I mean, like I, I, I share these concerns very much and particularly this sense of desiring the destruction of the state. Right. And the power of the state, which is, um, you know, something that I think, you know, isn't just tech lords. I think that's somewhere around like 30, you know, about a third of Americans are anti-government patriots. They believe that the future of America involves a state that is essentially useless. Right. And essentially does not govern at all. That, you know, that to me is the more worrying thing is that there's a real solid base of support for this outside of these uh, outside of these, you know, eccentric uh, robber barons of the current age, if you will. Well, indeed, we don't know what the numbers are in terms of Trump for support for Trump. But we know that the more he gets indicted, the, <laughs> the more support he picks up Absolutely. Uh, on the on the right and far right. And, and well, you know, it's not just and just general numbers. It increases yeah. his base, right? I mean, it's like I, I remember. You know, I'm in Toronto, and I remember when Rob Ford got caught smoking crack, and his numbers went up, right? And that's that that's a sort of deep trend that is really really troubling. It's not just in America; it happens everywhere. It happens in Europe too. Um, mm. Like the the arrest of someone makes them feel like an outsider. Which, right. of course, they are. It's hard to be more outside of Washington if you're in jail. <laughs> right, but, but just in closing, though, something like 69% of Republicans, and, and that includes, I guess, the MAGA people as well, 69% across the board believe that Trump won the last election and that Biden is illegitimate. So yeah. what explains that? I, I don't know whether you ever saw the movie the Idiocracy. That yeah. And I'm wondering the extent to which the U.S. has become an idiocracy. See, I don't think of it that in that sense. What I think of it is that there are distinct information networks that have sprung up that basically don't communicate with each other and basically have their own set of facts, right? And this becomes very clear. Like you go when you when you go to these places, when you go to Oklahoma and, and rural Oklahoma in these very Trump, they these people are not bad and they're certainly not stupid. They just receive a completely different diet of information than someone in say, you know, downtown Manhattan. Right. And, and that those, that, that hiving off of those information networks has essentially created two realities or, you know, probably three. And I mean, it depends on who you ask. Right. But the, like those, the, that's why, I mean, you know, at the end of the next civil war, I'm like, you know, the best solution here is separation because they are essentially two different meaningful countries. They have, they have two different, they have two different grounded meanings of very basic ideas of things like freedom and equality and, um, and, and America itself. And th those, those grounding notions really dominate everything they they they're so powerful that they essentially eradicate the need for facts from anyone right and, and no one no one people go to their newspapers for the truth they don't go there for the facts and and, and that means that policy like things that in other countries are just questions of policy like what is the best solution to this that that just is no longer possible right it's now everything is you know like choice or life 
rather than like what is a sensible abortion policy, right? And and, and this happens across the spectrum of political ideas in the United States, um, and, and and it creates this culture war mentality where like literally nothing is just why don't we ask ourselves a practical question of what's the best way to proceed? Uh, that, and that of course is a feedback loop which creates more anger and creates more, uh, you know, it, it makes it much more difficult to have meaningful political conversations. Well, Stephen Marsh, I thank you for joining us and I look forward to your new book co-authored with Andrew Yang, The Last Election. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Marsh, who's a novelist and culture writer who's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other publications. And his latest book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And his new book out in September, co-authored with Andrew Yang, is The Last Election. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into criticism of an APAC-sponsored trip to Israel by House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, who met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and has angered progressives for not taking a stand on Israeli democracy while APAC attacks progressive Democrats and supports over 100 House Republicans for re-election. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Howie Klein, who's a progressive blogger and political activist, as well as a concert promoter, disc jockey, music producer, record label founder, record label executive, and professor of music, who was president of Reprise Records. He supports and advises progressive candidates and blogs at downwithtyranny.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Howie Klein. Thanks, Ian. That was a wonderful introduction. I should have written it down so I could give it to other people. <laughs> well, you, I guess you earned it. So what do you make of criticism of the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who recently took an APEC-sponsored trip to Israel and met with Prime Minister Netanyahu? And this has angered progressives because he didn't take a stand on Israeli democracy, which is being, you know, demonstrated against in, by, by hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, uh, while APAC itself attacks progressive Democrats and supports over 100 House Republicans for re-election who voted uh, not to t- certify Joe Biden's victory, even after they themselves were threatened by the January 6th insurrection. So I, I don't know how many trips uh, Hakeem Jeffries has taken to Israel, but, but I think I read it was six or eight, something like that, since he's become the minority leader. Before that, he was already an APAC, for lack of a better word, whore, uh, even when he was in the, um, the Assembly, the New, uh, the New York State Assembly, before he was elected to Congress. This is who he's always been. He's an APAC guy. Uh, his, his, the 8th Congressional District in Brooklyn, w- which he represents, has a lot of uh, one-issue voters. They're, uh, they're, Israel, they're for Israel. That's it. He can't see how he can win uh, 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 his seat back if, he's not, if he doesn't take a strong stand 
on Israel. I can see that, but he, I guess he can't, and he doesn't, or he doesn't want to. In any case, he brought 24 Democrats, mostly freshmen, but not all freshmen, along with him on this trip. It was described as them walking around uh, during an apocalypse and thinking that they were uh, on a trip to Tahiti. I mean, you know how difficult things are in Israel right now because of the um, the changes that that the uh, that Likud and his uh, and Netanyahu's coalition are doing to the justice system. And you know, Jeffrey shouldn't have been over there. Uh, no American should go over there at this point. America has to get tough with Israel, and that's the opposite of what America is doing. APAC is basically used. APAC used to be a Democratic-leaning organization, and then it briefly was, an, uh, was a, um, a bipartisan-type organization, and, and now it's a Republican organization with a few corrupt Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries, uh, you know, kissing up to them. But, uh, you know, as, as you alluded to, APAC is now running campaigns against progressives, uh, and, and it, at least last cycle— Hakeem Jeffries was colluding with them, and they got rid of some progressive Democrats with Hakeem's uh, collusion. And I, I can't imagine he's going to do it again, but, but maybe a wink and a nod. I don't know that for sure, but they're certainly coming after Jamal Bowman. They're coming after uh, uh, Ilhan Omar and probably coming after Summers in Pittsburgh. But on this trip, apparently... The one of the congressmen on this trip to Israel, APEC sponsored trip, was Representative Shri Thenadar, who APEC yes. spent four million dollars trying to defeat in the last election. Right. So he learned his lesson, and he's now going to be a good little boy and never go after APEC again. On the other hand, uh, Summers and um, Ilhan Omar and um, Bowman—they're not going to ever go go in that direction. So when you describe Hakeem Jeffries as being corrupt, Howie, why do you say that? It's just because he's in APAC's pocket, that doesn't necessarily make him corrupt, does it? Yes, it does. And we'll explain. Okay, so APAC exists for uh, one reason, and that's to funnel money from uh, wealthy Republican-leaning or Republican billionaires into the pockets of politicians to get them to be more conservative. And there is a, uh, a definite connection between conservatism and support for uh, the Likud party in Israel. And, uh, and, you know, last cycle, they did the same thing. They, you know, they went after a, a prominent Jewish progressive in Michigan, Andy Levin, who certainly supports Israel, if maybe not the Likud, but he definitely supports Israel in a big way. And they, and they went after him and defeated him and spent a lot more than $4 million doing that. That's what they do. And Hakeem Jeffries, although he didn't come out uh, publicly, uh, was very much part of that effort. And, uh, you know, where he did come out publicly was um, when they went after people who weren't members of Congress. So they went after progressives who weren't, weren't members but who were running, and they spent lots and lots of money um, uh, trying, to, trying and successfully to defeat these people in North Carolina, here in California, uh, all, all over the country. Very, very, uh, Texas, very few um, progressives 
who were challenged by APAC with the, with the sometimes direct uh, and sometimes less direct uh, connivance of Hakeem Jeffries. And so if, you're, if, if you are asking me if Hakeem Jeffries takes bribes, you know, I have a, I have a very, very broad definition of bribes. Uh, when someone takes money and then does what the uh, people who give them the money uh, ask them to do, I consider that a bribe. But in Congress, where they get to define legally what a bribe is, they, leave, they make it certain so that their own activities that they do constantly are not considered uh, bribes from a legal perspective. But when you talk to people and you define and you tell them, you know, so and so took money from this organization, lots of money from this organization, and then they voted that way, is that a bribe? Everyone will say yes, that's a bribe. It's common sense. But since Congress has chosen to exclude their own behavior, they don't go to jail for it. Very, very rarely do any of them go to jail. Unfortunately, I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm sorry to get off the topic. He's in jail now, he gave tens of millions of dollars to members of Congress. You can't be a briber unless there's a bribee. And it's going to be interesting to see how they handle it. I wonder if it's going to be by him commit, you know, so-called committing suicide in the uh, Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. Well, indeed, there's uh, more Democrats took money from him than Republicans, didn't they, from Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, his crypto scam? I, no. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I mean, maybe, but not necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. He was pretty much, you know, he and his partner were pretty much giving out, you know, tens of millions of dollars to to both parties. And, you know, and that includes, um, you know, the PAC run by McConnell, the PAC run by McCarthy, the PAC run by Nancy Pelosi. The, so he was giving to all of them. Did he give a little bit more to Democrats? I don't know. Did he give a little bit more to Republicans? I'm not sure. He might, sure. He might have. But, right. but in that amount of money, it doesn't matter. It was so many millions of dollars, that, that it was, tens of millions of dollars, that it doesn't matter who he gave a little bit more to. So I'm trying to understand, though, Harry Klein, why the Democrats are taking this junket sponsored by APEC to Israel and getting the dog and pony show treatment, okay? So, right, it was a junket. But you, you were saying, and it's it's clearly true, that APEC is essentially now a Republican organization. It did start out as a de- Democratic organization, or at least sponsoring Democrats, but now it's pretty much fun- funded by right-wing billionaires who are Republicans and who vote Republicans, like, like the late Sheldon Adelson, whose wife Miriam now... Adelson, yeah. Yeah, gives money to APEC. So what's their thinking then? If if APEC's funding the very Republicans who wouldn't even certify Biden's victory after they were themselves were threatened by the January 6th insurrection, these are hardcore MAGA people. Why is Jeffries yes. wasting his time with APEC when they're funding the very people who want to get rid of his caucus? He doesn't feel he's wasting his time because they give money to him too. And here we have a case of if they're giving more money to Republicans, but they're giving some significant amount of money to Democrats, that's good enough for them. Would they like to get more money? Sure they would. And, and that's why they do things like this uh, uh, dog and pony uh, exercise in Israel. So, yes, they would like to get more, but they're still getting lots. And, uh, and, and that, that, I'm assuming, is how uh, Hakeem Jeffries thinks. Not, well, not I suppose- to mention his, his whole leadership team. They're, they're, 
they're all they're all corrupt. Well, the, the, but the but the point is that they spend money to defeat Democrats, right? Before they even get to Congress, and this is uh, this is their record. Uh, and my understanding is that I think only one or two have survived that, right? So they're they're well, that, it, shaping the Democratic Party, aren't they? APEC. It wasn't so much that they were they were uh, uh, funding um, Republicans to go after Democrats. They were funding c- conservative Democrats to go after progressive Democrats. Right, and in the that primaries. is right yeah. right up um, uh, Hakeem Jeffries' alley because he's he he he. You know, it's funny. He was a member of the uh, of the Progressive Caucus. People there said they've never seen him uh, to a, come to a caucus meeting. He had nothing to do with it. He just was on paper, a member. He is what you might call a centrist, uh, but uh, in the Democratic Party, he's right. He's to the right. He's a centrist if you count in everybody who's in Congress, including Republicans. Then, yeah, he, then he's sort of in the center. But if you're just looking among Democrats, he's on the right. And he didn't want uh, these progressives coming in, into office. You know, he started his own pack with uh, Jock Got- Gottheimer, another big APAC uh, or. And and the idea of it was that there would be uh, anybody who who challenged an incumbent, an incumbent Democrat, any progressive who who challenged a, a, um, an incumbent, they would spend money defeating them, including getting APAC to help. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's strange because Hakeem Jeffries' whole career, his whole political career, has been based on that. He cha- he challenged several times uh, Roger Green, an assemblyman in Brooklyn before he finally uh, was able to get a, a position in the assembly. And and then when he was in the assembly, he went after, um, what's his name, Adolphus Towns, who was a congressman, a forever congressman. And um, and then he drove Towns out of the race. I mean, in other words, he he had he was able to assemble so much money that he he was able to just drown Towns so that Towns uh, just said, okay, I'm retiring. And he, and then he waltzed into the race uh, because there was, it was him against the progressive that came in and the progressive had no choice, no chance against him. Uh, everybody endorsed um, him, including, o- o- well, Obama didn't officially endorse him, but he, but he took a picture uh, with him uh, and with, with Bill Clinton. But, but the whole establishment came out in favor of Hakeem Jeffries because that's who he is. He is a, an establishment guy. And uh, and very 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 anti-progressive. He is he is the epitome of an anti-progressive Democrat. When uh, AOC defeated Crowley, he made the move to become the uh, the chair of the Democratic Caucus. And and how did he do that? By just smearing the hell out of Barbara Lee, who ran for the thing as well, and and getting all the members to vote for him, including progressives. It was like, absolutely shameful. And that was his uh, step towards. Uh, being the minority leader and eventually the speaker. I mean, he is going to wind up being the speaker, which is just absolutely horrible. People who thought Nancy Pelosi was bad, wait till they uh, get to see what Hakeem Jeffries is going to be up to. He was elected to become minority leader by the Democratic caucus, right? By the members. A hundred percent of them. 212 Democrats voted for him. Every single Democrat. That that includes all the the progressives? Every single one. No... not even ones who I've talked to who hate his guts and who say 
he's he's horrible and he's going to be a danger to the Democratic Party and a danger to the country. So people I've personally spoken to who know how bad he is, they all voted for him anyway because they were trying to make a point that uh, they're all united where the Republicans, as you remember, and that Ian McCarthy couldn't get the votes. Uh, so day after day after day, the Democrats looked like they were united, whereas the Republicans were the opposite of united. They were just absolutely uh, dysfunctional. All right. Well, you've filled us in on some stuff that I haven't heard before, and I'm sure our audience hasn't heard before, and um, um, we will stay in touch. Yes, your audience, uh, as you mentioned, I, I, um, I write a, a blog called Down with Tyranny. I write about Hakeem Jeffries and have been for many years. And uh, whenever he does something bad, like this, I write about it. And uh, so if people are interested in who he is and what his background is and what the context is, They'll find it at downwithtyranny.com. And again, I've been speaking with Howie Klein, who's a progressive blogger and political activist, as well as a concert promoter, disc jockey, music producer, record label founder, record label executive, and professor of music, who was president of Reprise Records. He supports and advises progressive candidates and blogs at downwithtyranny.com. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone One more light goes out in